good talk to yourself and why am I doing this now and what is it that I want to, to gain from it and what are my conflicts of interest and what are my agendas as somebody that is bringing something to a journalist. That's Deborah Cohen, former BMJ investigations editor who now works on programmes like Panorama for the BBC. At Evidence Live this year, the focus of the conference was on communication of evidence, both academically and to the public. And part of that is the role that investigative journalism has to play. At the BMJ, we've used journalistic techniques to try and expose wrongdoing on the part of government and industry, always in collaboration with clinicians and researchers. I'm Duncan Jarvis, Multimedia Editor for the BMJ, and to explain a bit more about the world of journalism and campaigning, I spoke to Shelley Joffrey from the BBC, Yet Shouten from Radar, a Dutch TV programme, Kath Sampson, who started the online Sling the Mesh campaign, and of course, Deb Cohen. Firstly, Shelley Joffrey has had years of experience in bringing complex stories about health and other investigation-worthy topics to a wide audience at the BBC. So I asked her about what kind of things a journalist is looking for. Well, so I've always um, been interested in doing investigations. I've been at the BBC for 26 years, but probably for about 21 of them I've been doing investigations, um, starting off in Scotland and then 15 years on, on Panorama, where I ended up, you know, a large number of my films were health related and then even even within that more specialists looking at risks versus benefits um, and prescription medicines it's just an accident really I don't have a scientific background or a medical background but I just found it fascinating um, and you know in the in the discussion there as well it, it's obviously a question that vexes a lot of um, clinicians as well as patients and and journalists is just how on earth do we balance up risks versus benefits. It's like the, the, the fundamental question that never goes away and I'm not sure anyone has ever quite nailed it yet, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't stop asking. And obviously that's the, the job of a journalist is to ask those kind of questions. Um, but often that is prompted by some research maybe or, or someone coming to you as a source to say, I think there's something going on here. Um, and to our listeners are predominantly medical and you know if someone was to come to you what is the kind of thing that you're looking for what's what do you think journalists are interested in well I, you know I've got to, I guess I've got to find their their research interesting so um and for me it just tends to have people at the heart of it so I mean I, I know there's loads of interesting work out there that might not have people at the heart of it but probably especially when you're trying to turn it into television that's going to be difficult and you know it might work more in print but um for television uh you know guilty documents only take you so far you need you need people and and especially in the the, the field of health um health stories are all about people you know there's so many stories out there and so many competing claims and I think it's never been uh, more important and you know people are bombarded with information now on social media and uh, other other, um, internet outlets that there's a real thirst for somebody to say look 
just just tell me what what's true here. I don't understand. There's so much information. He says that. She says this. What what, what do you think? To to try and find trusted voices who have actually, you know, based their opinions on sound evidence. I think we 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 need that more than ever before. But actually, it's it's pretty hard because because it's very noisy out there. Mm. And that noise, I think, is something that. People who aren't, you know, part of the media worry about that they're going to be sort of caught up in that, lose maybe some control over over something that they're working on. Um, do you think that's a, a a fear that's that's not baseless? It's certainly the biggest fear when you deal with people who work in academic research. And uh, if I'm brutally honest, it's a great source of frustration. The, 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 you know, they tend to be the most frustrating interviewees because they want to keep absolute control of what they're saying and how they're saying it. Um, because I think there's a very understandable and real concern about how they'll be judged by their peers. Um, and nobody ever wants to go off their area of, you know, academic expertise or venture an opinion that doesn't, you know, appear to be absolutely rock solid. And that can be a bit frustrating because I guess when we're doing interviews with people, you know, it's got to be accessible and and it's also got to feel authentic and, and feel real. You know, people really respond to somebody who can tell a story well. Um, and, and I think... A lot of researchers and scientists could probably present their work better if they just thought a bit more about how the, the you know the viewer the listener is is going to kind of uh, access it rather than worrying you know will, will professor so and so think that I'm terribly clever if I say this uh, try and think about how the ordinary person who this actually affects directly is going to understand it because actually a lot of the time people just are just left scratching their heads and they haven't got a clue and in this day and age as you know we've alluded to social media and things um someone could talk directly to the wider world about their research um what do you think your role in that is you know what what do you do that sort of helps get that message out well i think my role is obviously not just to put out somebody else's message, but to try and kind of take an, from a number of sources um, information and try and weigh it up and balance it and hold it up to the light and, you know, basically try and evaluate on behalf of the audience where the truth may lie. Now, I think people are less and less open to that, to be honest, at the moment. I don't think it's an easy place to be, to be a, a reporter who's trying to explain to you what to think uh, because people just want to do want to cut out the middleman and actually I, I guess if you're a great communicator as a, a scientist maybe you would be better just to speak direct to the person if you want to make sure your message gets out there loud and clear then uh, yeah maybe, maybe you should be just speaking direct to the people that you want to reach but I guess maybe where we can help is, is is trying to get you to say it in a way that's going to land well and, and, and be easily understood because that's what we have to do day in, day out. There's something you kind of alluded to in that, which is about, you know, in this you're working for the audience. You're not working to get someone's message out. 
um, however much they might believe in it. And that might be a misconception that people have when they, they come to you with a story. Yeah, I think I think that's true. I think, um, and I, I get that, because, you know, if you've spent several years devoted to the study of of one thing and you feel like you've you've just published this great paper and it's, uh, you know, it's the seminal paper about that subject, you might not really welcome me saying, yeah, but but there's this other guy over there who says this. Um, you know, I, I understand that you might want want the spotlight, but I don't know, we're, we're, we're all supposed to be about, you know, improving the understanding of the public as medicine and science. So, you know, I think you've got to open yourself up to the idea that, that there are competing views that need to be listened to alongside it. It's not, it, it's not insulting to say, okay, we've heard what you've got to say, but here's somebody else's take on it. I mean, that's, that's, that's kind of the richness of, of debate and how we all learn things, I think, and how we push things forward. We heard there from Shelley that it's all about people and that journalists, first and foremost, have their audience in mind when it comes to what they decide to cover and how they'll do that. Deb Cohen has straddled the world of clinical and academic medicine and mass media. So I asked her about how the role of clinicians and researchers may differ in those two realms. I am Deborah Cohen. I am an associate editor of the BMJ. I was investigations editor um, and I'm now freelance um, working across the piece in, in broadcast journalism, in print and obviously still in academic mm. journalism in journals. Now, as you said there, you've, you've bridged the two and the media that... Um, academics or clinicians might be most comfortable sort of thinking about writing for or or being involved in is that academic literature like the BMJ. Um, But you've also worked in broadcast and things and I wonder do you what do you think is the different role of of someone who has a story in the academic as opposed to the kind of you know broadcast or, or lay media? I mean, the, the, working on an academic, doing a, a, an investigation for an academic publication is very different from doing something for a more current affairs. Um, first of all, your audience is very different. Um, and when you report that, you, you, you've got more scope in some ways because you don't have to get a case study. So in TV, you have to have people to interview. You have to have cases. The BMJ, increasingly, obviously, we want to hear the patient perspective, but you can talk um, in terms of evidence, in terms of trials, right throughout in quite clinical, in a clinical way. But if, you, if you're doing a programme, if you've got data, you try to find the, the person that accurately reflects that data, and that's what try to do in very much more in TV um, because the anecdote just works a lot better on telly the pe- the personal story the patient journey works a lot better than just simply you know the statistic but the key is to marry up the per- patient journey with the statistic or the statistic with the patient journey is is obviously the obvious way around so you're not cherry picking mm-hmm. um, so so there are tricks and I think you have to be and there are merits of both I mean, the impact is different and if you are an academic or you are a doctor wanting to work with the media think about what your end goal ultimately is do you want to bring about change um do you want to communicate to the general public 
Um, do you want to raise awareness? And I hate that term, but you know, it's it's one way. Yeah, really think about what your end goal is and what you're trying to achieve before you you contact a journalist and have a good good talk to yourself and why am I doing this now and what is it that I want to to gain from it and what are my conflicts of interest and what are my agendas as somebody that is bringing something to a journalist Um, and also think about what the criticisms about you might be if you are raising concerns have you gone through the the right pathways before you get to a journalist or are you running to a journalist with a story without let's say if you've got harm going to the MHRA say for example or going to the European Medicines Agency or if it's a workplace issue have you followed your workplace's procedures have you exhausted the pathways at the university that might be available to you in terms of scientific misconduct say for example make sure you've done through gone through that really as best you can before you get to a journalist Mm -hmm. I'd say. So that's interesting. I mean, that's really about audience. So think about how you communicate to that audience, but also how that audience might perceive you um, uh, and all the uh, your flaws um, that, that everyone has. Um, do you think that's part of your role as a journalist, is really sort of like helping someone pick that and, and prepare for some of that, that inevitable criticism? Absolutely. We have to kind of run the riot act. Um, and what is someone going to say about you now? And I think when you often as well, what I notice is when you work with specialists, so people within a certain specialty, I always say to them, and and, and there is an issue sometimes, let's say if you're working in cardiology, you might not get support for raising concern amongst your cardiology colleagues. Reach out, go out beyond your specialty. Um you know, some stories I've done, let's say the metal on metal hip stuff, you've, you've seen it's been a kind of, dirty secret if you like and I don't mean that in any particularly pejorative term but pejorative way but they've been talking about it in the specialist literature but nothing's been done because you haven't engaged the wider medical community or the wider the wider audience um I'm not a misanthropic kind of person um and no one likes criticism but it's an an inevitability and and that people aren't going to be like like being told certain stuff and I think as doctors we don't like to be told as doctors we have been potentially harming our patient or that we perhaps have been duped and that can be quite a bitter pill to swallow. You know some people might be worried about the effects that the media have undermining trust that doctor-patient trust. Um, you know there is a tension there that that's inevitable um, what do you think about it? How do you feel about it? I think that, and I'm not going to defend poor, shoddy, sloppy journalism. Um, absolutely not. Um, and medicine can be difficult to interpret and understand and report on. Um, and uncertainty, and there's a lot of uncertainty, as we know, doesn't necessarily make a good story. But I think if the stuff that you see that you don't like, ask why it's got to that stage why is it that people are latching on to you know that vaccines are are totally safe you know why why is that and anyone that that raises concerns is an anti-vaxxer um everything water if you take have too much water it has has a harm so um i think there has to be something about the messaging as well that that 
authorities and people in public positions put out. If they want trust, that trust has to be earned. And increasingly so with a with a social media. And, and, and clearly there's going to be all sorts of conspiracy theories and everything else. But all that you can do is take ownership of what you put into the public domain and whether that is a fair and accurate reflection of what's actually going on. And so I think as health professionals whether that's on a journal, whether that's being a doctor, whether that's being, you know, as a, as a position of authority, we have to get our message right. Otherwise, there is a potential crisis of confidence and a breakdown of trust. As Deb was suggesting there, investigative journalism tries to bring the truth to light. And that will work better if everyone is clear about what they want when they work with a journalist. It's an experience that will open everyone up for criticism. So before publishing or airing a report, a great deal of time and effort will go into checking facts. Yet Shounton has spent, in the world of mass media anyway, an incredible amount of time doggedly exposing the failings of medical device regulation. Most recently, by working with Oxford University, to show that, in the EU at least, it would be possible to get the netting that fruit's packaged in in supermarkets, that bright orange or red stuff that you get your Christmas clementines in, registered as a medical device and potentially licensed for implantation into the human body. My name is Jet Schouten and I work for a consumers program uh, in the Netherlands called Radar. It's a TV program. Uh, approximately two million people watch our show every week. And what we're trying to do, we're trying to translate seemingly complex issues for a very big audience. So health is one of the investigation pillars, but we also do uh, other topics like financial or environmental uh, issues. How is it that you in Radar come about a story? I think the people listening to this podcast will be clinical. They will know of, of things that are going on, um, but they don't necessarily know how things get into the media. So how is it that you kind of source your stories? Yes, well, in, in our case, we have a very uh, direct connection with our audience because we get hundreds uh, and thousands of emails and, and really old-fashioned letters. And what we do, we read every single one of them. Now, that's a lot, a lot, a lot of work. We have a big team to do that. And then we filter and we look for trends. So we keep all the reports uh, that come in, we, we, we keep them into uh, into dossiers and when we see a trend we investigate that trend mm. now in implants how I started investigating it is really started with one letter so sometimes it's a multiple of letters and sometimes it's one letter that is so disconcerting that you really have to look into it and you know part of that was uh, I was almost amazed to hear that you had nine months set aside to really look in depth at this and that's not very normal for a journalist. No, it is not. So what happens is that um, in in most um, TV shows or newspapers or radio programs, you you get a short uh, am amount of time for a topic. In our case, we're a weekly program, so every week we have to deliver. Um, that can create uh, some amount of pressure. Now, I am in the luxury position where I uh, have a great uh, boss, editor-in-chief, who, uh, who granted me more time for this story. She gave me nine months to investigate um, 
you know, the, the, the whole structure of uh, implants and how they come into the market. So we do a lot of undercover stories as well when we feel that there's no other way. So, of course, it's not legal to go undercover because it's basically deceiving people mm. because you're having a camera hidden somewhere. So it's a very grave thing to use as a journalist. So we have to use it very prudently. And what I wanted to do with the nine months investigation is I want to really see how the system worked. And the only way to do that is to go into the system. So I needed a lot of time. I mean, it's interesting there because you're kind of hinting towards some of the methodology that journalists can use which vary massively from from that that an academic wouldn't be able to do and I wonder about those sort of complementary skills and and how you think that sort of academic work can work with journalistic work to to really bust open a story like yeah. Well, I think it all starts with questions um, that journalists have, that researchers have, that physicians could have and that patients have. And the, and the question really is here, how is this possible that this happens? Mm -hmm. I mean, how come this keeps happening uh, again and again and again, not only with MASH, but also other implants? And you can um, extrapolate uh, questions also for, for drugs or other questions. So it also s always starts with a question, a research question. And what happens then is that you, you, you always start from an hypothesis and then you need really the cooperation of experts um, to come along and help you with those questions because, you know, we're just journalists. We we we're not we're not all doctors. Um, so I I need my experts to help me with questions. And this is how we can work together, really. And this is how I do work together when I don't know. Um, answers to my question or when I have difficulty understanding an article, I, I ask as experts to help me with that. But that's not always a simple process, is it? I mean, you've, you've had difficulty, you were saying, recruiting people within the Netherlands who were happy to speak out about vaginal mesh and, and the issues that you'd identified and, and the people writing into your show had identified as well. Yes, so... Um, what my experience is, is that um, when you're working for a high-profile program, which we are in the Netherlands, uh, I mean, most people know radar and most people in the medical world, they fear uh, radar. So, um, yeah, really, if, if I sometimes phone a physician, they're like, oh, I'm not going to talk to you because you work for radar. And that immediately creates... Um, a problem in my work because I, I need my sources to give me input. Now, whether these sources come from the medical world or from the pharmaceutical world or at governmental level, um, I need information to get the full picture, to get the full data set. And that can be immensely problematic. But you also know that there is a problem if people are just not willing to give the information that you ask I'm for. I'm sort of wrapped up in there is, I think, a worry that academics might have, which is that a journalist will come to them and say, you know, how many people is this affected? How, you know, what's the scale of the problem? There will be some question that they feel pressured to answer um, that they don't have the data for or the data isn't available for. And... I suppose, what, as you, what are you trying to do as a journalist when you're pushing to get those kind of answers? You know, what, what's the purpose of that and why is that kind of information um, important and, and how do you think people can 
usefully answer that kind of question? Um, well, so it's like three questions. In yes, one there. it is. Well, I think you know what's important here is that um, if you if you immediately shut all the doors, it's just as journalists, it's immediately suspicious because why don't you want to say anything? I mean, if you don't know the answer, that's also an answer, just as well. You can just say as a physician, well, in all honesty, I don't know if this is a good drug or a good device or a good vaccine or or whatever. But if you immediately close all the doors, that's just highly suspicious. And not only um, within physicians, but uh, or amongst physicians, but also at governmental uh, level. So I think I think what would help if people would realize is that um, you know all information is useful, and it's really. I understand it's scary because you don't know what's being done with that information, but you can you can really ask then also counter questions like what are you going to do with this information? Is this on the record or is it off the record? Um, uh, can we stay in touch about this? What what are you going to? What are, when are you going to publish? And how are you going to publish? What are your other sources? Who did you talk to already? So be critical also to journalists, and then see how we can, you know, work together. Because really, ultimately, the end of the day, I'm in it at least to you know improve a situation and to make a situation better and. Yeah, for for the greater good. So far, we've been talking about the mass media, traditional outlets such as the BBC or broadsheets. But in the new world of social media, the power that was once solely wielded by those institutions has become democratised, for good and for ill. Cass Sampson has used the power of social media to unify disparate and disenfranchised voices in this case, the women who have had vaginal mesh implants, which have gone bad, to talk directly to politicians. And in doing so has affected change in a way that would have been impossible even 10 years ago. So my name is Kath Sansom and I run the Sling the Mesh campaign. I'm the woman that has got the vaginal mesh implant into the media and also into Parliament um, so that it's seen as a credible campaign. Um, Hopefully I've raised awareness of what I see as the biggest women's health disaster of the century, of our generation. It's really hard work, but my motivation, I'm absolutely passionate about empowering women to find their voice, to feel that they can complain about what has happened to them, to create a movement of change. Mm. Now, you're a journalist, um, but your Sling the Mesh campaign wasn't really sort of mediated through through those traditional old-fashioned media you, you've done it through social media and Facebook things like that yeah yeah I very much wanted to um, rally troops and I, I realized that Twitter and social media and Facebook is a really powerful platform for getting your voices heard by tweeting it at MPs by tweeting it at important people by adding certain hashtags it's been a really powerful platform to to have our voices heard and for those in power to realise that, you know, we are credible, mm. we know our stuff and we're not going away. Mm. And and that's been really empowering for all of my members of the campaign, actually, to know that they can quite easily, they might be in a lot of pain, they, they might not be able to go out and rally, but they can get on social media and have their voices heard that way. Mm. And um, 
I mean, you've been incredibly successful uh, in getting your voice heard, and perhaps more so than anyone in traditional media has been. So, um, yeah, tell us about, about the event in Parliament. Uh, so we had our first debate, it was a Westminster Hall debate and that was back in October um, and we had some of our members turn up to that. Previously in the summer last year we just held a lobby and we had about 100 women came and told their stories. That was a really emotional and powerful event and that was when I think the MPs really sat up and realised just how catastrophic these injuries are for young women we're not you know there's obviously old women as well in the campaign there's all ages but there are so many young mums with young children struggling in absolutely horrific pain and, and that's what came across in in our first lobby and that's when MP started taking us seriously so we had the Westminster Hall debate in October we then had an, uh, another debate uh, a three-hour debate in April, uh, and and I would say it's snowballing in the political arena. Mm, mm. Um, so we've now got a review into Primados, Valproate, and Mesh. So um, we're putting together our submission for that to Baroness Cumberledge. Um, we've also put in a submission to the Chief Medical Officer, and it's empowering to feel that the power of all the women in the group have done that mm. you know i've rallied the troops and the troops have, have have totally stepped up to the mark so it's not just me it's all of us have created this tidal wave of pressure on the government mm. and it's, it's a social movement yes it is um and you know for clinicians or researchers or, or whomever um you know what role could they play within that do you think you know how could they get involved and in and how could they help sort of you know if they've got a story like this do do something similar um well I, i'll stick with mesh for the time being what they can do a lot of clinicians out there realize the severity of these complications but they're frightened to speak out and i think what they can do to help is actually be honest and and talk about what a disaster the mesh implants are. Um, because by remaining quiet, they're implicit in the catastrophe also. Oh, you've got this big social movement that's already working. Do you, do you think you need clinician voices? Yes, definitely. Because clinicians, traditionally in the NHS, people are frightened to speak out against the establishment. It's how it is. They're frightened for their jobs. But actually, we do need more clinicians to get on board because uh, uh, until they do... We've just got a, like a, a couple who will speak publicly in the media, and there's a couple of others behind the scenes who'll speak but don't want their voice, their, their names to be known. Um, and until more clinicians come forward, um, those ones that do speak out are vilified by colleagues, and that's wrong, because actually they need to understand. I know I keep talking about the severity. They need to understand that when a woman has mesh injuries, it is for life and it, and it is really, well, on a scale of, of recovery, you lose elements of your life and they need to realise how devastating it is. Mm. So they need to come forward and, and, and speak out and, and because there's plenty out there that realise how bad it is but are frightened to speak. You've been listening to Shelley Joffrey, Yet Shouten, Kath Sampson and Deborah Cohen talk about the role of investigative journalism in health and how clinicians and researchers can best work with them. That's all for this episode. 
but we'll have more coming up from Evidence Live, including how to collect evidence in an emergency situation, when that could take time and resources from people in desperate need. You'll find that podcast and our back catalogue, hundreds of episodes, all available for free on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts from. There you'll also be able to find previous interviews from Evidence Live, covering waste, better reporting, and our campaign to clean up the E in EBM. I'm Duncan Jarvis. Thanks for listening.